that's so vibey. Um, just in case you don't know, my name is Ed Holmes. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, my wife and I run two companies. We've been entrepreneurs for the last two years. We were pastors on staff at another area local church for about 10 years before that. We run, like I said, two companies, um, Axios Coaching. And we live at this intersection of performance and stress management, and we help people create a life they love. Because we've lived a life we didn't, and now we live a life we do. And we believe that that's a promise of Jesus to give us life and life more abundantly, right? We're going to talk about that in a second. And then we run a second company called Axios Creative, where we do branding and social media management, which is very funny because I literally am horrible at social media. And then we help run other, whatever. It's ironic to me. I'll laugh at it. But um, we're going to continue this series, Follow Me. Go with me to two passages of Scripture. Matthew 16. 24 through 26, and then John 5, 1 through 16. And why don't you stand? Is this the tradition of this house? We're going to stand for the reading of the word. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. Matthew 5, 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Um, by the way, the picture of that cross here is it's not styrofoam. It's heavy. We're going we're gonna to talk about, I think we have bought into a lie where we've confused salvation with sanctification. And we assume that we have this momentary struggle and then it's ease after that. When in reality, we're called to carry heavy burdens and show that the grace of God works. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? John 5, 1 through 16. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the Pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. If you're thinking Copacabana, that's not what this is, just so you know. Crowds of sick people. Was that a reference that went over most people's head? I just had that thought. If you're thinking like Sandals Resort, that's not what this is, all right? Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches, and one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. We know it's important because the narrative includes how long it's been. And then Jesus saw him, and he repeats this thought that he knew he had been ill for a long time. And he asked him this fascinating question. Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. The concept was that an angel would go into the pool one time a year, and as the water started to move, the first person to fall in would get healed. So he says, I, I can't get someone to take me close enough for me to fall in. Jesus, the healer, says to him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk find it interesting that there's some of us, including myself, who have lived with things for years that Jesus wants to say it's time to move on from. Instantly, the man was healed. Instantly. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up 
your mat and walk. Isn't it interesting that sometimes religion says it doesn't work that way and you're standing as proof of God's grace and says, I don't care what your rules say. Jesus is setting me free. Who said, a, who said such a thing as that they demanded? And the man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, this is interesting, now you are well, so stop sinning. We're saved in a moment. We're sanctified daily. We're saved in a moment. We crucify our fleshly desires daily. Or something even worse may happen to you, which is interesting because he hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. It's pretty bad. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had healed him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have set us free, that this is the message of the gospel, that I once was dead and now I'm alive in you, that I once was in bondage, enslaved in sin, and you have set me free. I ask as we talk about how quickly we can accept defeat in areas that you have called us to walk in victory, that we would not pick up shame, guilt, and condemnation, but we would be reminded of this is another place in our life for your grace to prove itself true. God, we thank you that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that we are individually your church. And as we expand and step into the fullness you have for us, your church expands as well. We thank you for that in your name. Amen. You can grab a seat. Turn to someone next to you and say, there is work to do. There's work to do. I'm going to come out and say it. I'm going to give you the punchline of today at the beginning. It, it is so easy to blame the world, the flesh, the devil, our spouse, our kids, our boss, the economy, the political structure of our country for the reason why I'm not showing up well. Think about this story in John 5. This man had been lame for 38 years. That's a, it's longer than I've been alive. I know I look like my mid-20s. I'm actually 34. But Jesus comes to him, and he knows that he's been lame for a long time, hasn't been able to walk. And the picture, the word picture here, is that he's actually laying on the outskirts. There's no chance this guy's getting to the pool when the angel walks through and the water begins to disrupt and he can fall in and get healed. And Jesus walks up understanding he's been this way for a long time. And here's the interesting thing. The longer I have been away, the more I am sure I will stay that way. I'm going to say that again. The longer I have lived life a certain way, the more sure I am that things will stay that way. The longer my marriage has been contentious, the more sure I am that my marriage will not improve. The longer that I've barely made, made ends meet financially, the more sure I am that I will continue to live with financial struggle. The longer that I have struggled to get control of my health, 
the more sure I am that I will continue to live with my health out of control. See, my identity is who I believe myself to be. And then my brain's job is to regulate my behaviors and what I'm creating in the moment back to who I believe myself to be. I am is by far the most powerful words in the English language. And we I am ourselves into living small, safe, comfortable lives instead of the more than conquering life that Jesus put the seed of the divine in us to live. Becomes a lens. Just walking around life. Convinced that what I see is all there is. Well, you don't get it. Like, my job specifically is highly impacted by the state of the economy. And because it's so impacted by the economy, there's no way that I can get ahead financially. What I see is all there is. We, you don't get it. If you had the spouse I had, and we, you went through what we went through, you wouldn't show up vulnerably either. Or how about this one? This one was big for me. Oh, you don't understand the upbringing I had. So like I'm a recovering addict. I saw my first pornography image in single digits. It's one of the most formative early childhood memories that I have. And then I, I didn't realize that I was predisposed to addiction and then it turned into food and alcohol on top of that. Oh, you don't get it. I didn't ask to see that. I didn't ask for that to be awoken in me. If you understood my childhood, what I went through, how ostracized I felt, how I was bullied, if you really understood, then my behavior right now would make sense. Jesus comes to a man who had every right to say, this is how it is and this is how it always will be. And his question to him is fascinating. Do you want to be made well. In essence, Jesus is asking, do you want why you believe you're justified to keep laying here to no longer be an excuse? We don't realize it, but giving up our life so we can gain it also means giving up the reasons we say, well, it works for them, but it doesn't work for me. Because, like, there's levels of commitment, right? There's, I want. My dad used to tell me, Dad, I really want this to work. My dad would go, you can spit in one hand and want in the other and tell me which one weighs more. Well, it turns out spit weighs more than wants. I want. And then there's, I'll try. You ever been in a conversation with someone you really love but you're very frustrated with and they say, I want to get better, I'll try? I mean, that's a recipe for more arguing, right? And then there's, I'm committed unless. Like, hey, I'm really committed to showing up for you unless you do that thing that sparks insecurity in me and then my guard's going right back up. Hey, Jesus, I'm really committed to show up and volunteer until I feel like I'm not being noticed and then I'm out. Hey, Jesus, I'm committed to being generous unless uh, there's not like a magic check that shows up in the mail 
which as much as I've prayed for magic checks, they don't show up, by the way. Hasn't worked. But I want my ROI. I'm committed unless. This is the response of the lame man. Hey, Jesus, I'm committed to, like, trying to get better as long as someone else takes care of it for me. Isn't it interesting that his response is exactly what we see in the fall of man? Adam and Eve? Hey, you weren't supposed to do that. Jesus, if you hadn't have given me her, we wouldn't be in this situation. I'm, I'm going to go there. It really breaks, Brittany and I coach couples, it really breaks my heart when a man takes a back seat instead of taking responsibility for his family. Breaks my heart. It, it's so interesting to me that there are couples where, like, the husband was attracted to the wife's strength, and then all of a sudden they decided that that's nagging and not sexy. And then they take a back seat and they're like, well, if she would, then I will. I'm committed unless. How many people does it take to improve a relationship? One. It only takes one. Why? Because two people in a vulnerability off saying, I'll drop my guns when you drop yours, have now put a lid on the capacity for the relationship to heal. When one person says, no, I'm going after Jesus and everything that God has for me, and I'm choosing to believe that he has a ripe, thriving, passionate marriage for us, and I don't care how you respond, I'm going to turn towards what Jesus is calling me to, to show up as a spouse, and you keep resubmitting that over and over and over again, and then you show up in a moment when normally you would fight and defend, and you say, you're right, I missed that. What would showing up for you actually look like? How can I show up better for you in this moment? By the way, I'm going to go find someone who can mentor me because I'm realizing I don't know how to show up well in our relationship, and I'm committed to you, and I'm committed doing whatever it takes to continue to improve my part. Now there's no lid on the relationship. And there's space for both people to grow. This is the final level of commitment. I'm committed despite. I'm committed whatever it takes. Jesus comes to the man and says, do you want to be made well? I think if we were to be honest, there's some areas where we want Jesus to heal us. We want Jesus to bring us into fullness, but we're not committed to it because the commitment is hard work. And I get it. There is so much benefit to playing the victim. And please, like, this is a triggering word with where we're at in culture and in society. Please let me explain it before you discount everything I'm about to say. Because I play victim. We all play victim. Victim is a dominant lens that is highly convenient for us to walk through life with. So, why do we play victim? Well, I get to avoid all accountability. It's not my fault. She did it. They did it. If my kids would stop frustrating me so much, then I would be able to focus more at work, and then we wouldn't be in this financial state we're in. Man, you want to be challenged. I was challenged recently. 
it is so easy for me to blame our state on the lack of progress that we had made financially to this point. We give so much money as entrepreneurs to our county in this state. And then I'm listening to a mindset coach saying, hey, instead of complaining about how much the state takes in taxes, why don't you just level up and go create more income and then it doesn't matter? Shoot. I was playing victim. And I got to avoid accountability for my own lack of performance. Isn't that convenient? Hey, I don't need to show up because they're not showing up. If they did, here's the trap though. If the solution, or no, if the problem is outside of me, the solution is too. So I am enslaved. It feels like a position of power. I'm actually enslaved now to them or to that situation. Victim is a safe place to live. It's a real, it's like firmly placed within your comfort zone. I'm avoiding all accountability. No one can push me outside of my comfort zone. I get to live right here and continue to be right about how wrong all of this is. Have you seen the state of our country? I mean, kids these days. I mean, I don't even know what TikTok is, but they're on it. And it's like corrupting their minds. I was listening to this podcast where this guy was saying that in China they do this, but in America they do that. China's coming. And that's why our economy's messed up. If Biden wasn't in office, then we would be. That's a real safe place to live. Because the solution is out there. You can't, nope, can't hold me accountable. And there is no weight on me. It's a safe place to live. And then I get the safe face. You can't hold me accountable. I'm nice and safe here. You know, I find it really interesting that those who are constantly, like, speaking poorly about other people generally are the ones who have nothing going on. Like, you'll never, I don't know if you've ever seen this anywhere, but it's a phenomenal quote. You will never be criticized by someone doing more than you. So, mere to me, as soon as I start criticizing, where am I playing victim? Because I'm challenged by the fact that they're not taking excuses, but I'm making them for me. And I'm laying lame. Jesus, if someone would just pick me up and drop me in the pond, I would be better. I get to avoid accountability. It's a safe place to be. I get to save face. And here's the last one. I get to control through manipulation. Real life story from me. I had, when I was a young adult, a girlfriend who was not the best to me emotionally and mentally. I can share stories that would invoke sympathy in you right now. As I described how I was a victim to her behavior. And I did that one time in front of a mentor of mine. Of mine. He pulled me aside after I spoke and he said, hey, dude, real high-performing people, they don't talk about ex-girlfriends. He called me out on the fact that I was controlling through manipulation. I was getting from the room what I wanted invoking sympathy of how I was victim. I mean, where do I do this in my own life now? Hey, so another real life example, let's just peel it back. I mean, this is on the internet and everything for posterity, so I'm sure someone, like my, my kids, future kids can talk to their therapist about these stories or something, but I love my dad. My dad was also raised in Boston. 
outside of New England. My dad, as I was, he is so much better now. He's put in so much work. I'm so thankful. My dad's emotions growing up went from like a negative one to positive one. I'm pretty sure he told me he loved me once when I was like seven. And then the assumption in our household was if that changes, he'll let us know. I did not observe my dad be highly complimentary or show affection publicly to my mom. Didn't observe it. So I assumed that's how marriages work. So then Brittany and I get married. Brittany is a massive words of affirmation and quality time person. I am neither of those things at all. So the first half of our marriage, Brittany is telling me this is how I would like to be loved. And I'm saying, well, babe, you know, I talked to the therapist about this. And they've pointed out that the reason that I struggled to be verbally affectionate with you is because of what my dad did to me. And so if you understood how I was raised, then you wouldn't hold me to the standard that I promised I would give you when we got married. I'm controlling through manipulation. And then I started getting around guys that were like, you can 110% have not received what you needed. And in that sense, been a victim. It could even not be your fault. I didn't choose to see those images when I was young. That's not my fault. And I am still responsible for how I show up now. So, as a win to me, Brittany's mirror is full of post-it notes. I give her a note every day. Why? Because I'm committed to showing up and loving her regardless of how I feel. I'm committed to spite. You know what's, like, fascinating about that? I start showing up well, and then I start getting back what I need. <laughs> Takes one. Takes one person to heal a marriage. Takes one person to change a family. Takes one person to change a school. Takes one person to change a work office. Takes one person to stop tolerating their own stories about why it's acceptable that they're laying beside the pool instead of working to get in it and saying, I am responsible and God has made me more than a conqueror and the kingdom of heaven is being expanded and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and there's work to do and I'm going to do it. I mean, think about what the church could accomplish if we understand there's work to do and we're the ones to do it. Like, I sit with high-performing, high-net-worth individuals often who are not believers. And they have more hope than believers do. And they don't know that we already won. And then I sit with believers, and it's like, well, if you understood, like, generationally, I just don't know how to earn income, and I, I'm just concerned about this. And did you see what's happening in Israel? Have you read Revelations? Like, we might as well hunker down and ride this thing out. No, there's work to do. And we're the ones to do it. I refuse to spiritualize my apathy and call it wisdom. I am so frustrated that I'm seeing us go on the defensive when we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Why? Because our hope is not dictated by the rules that the world is playing by. 
we win. We've read the end of the story. Our provision is not dictated by the earth's economy. The outcome of what's happening in the world does not change the fact that I understand that at the end of the day, I'm going to a better place. The political climate of our country does not need to dictate what I do day to day. Why? Because my kingdom is different. And I'm not going to sit back when there's work to do. And here's the thing. It is so easy to get so caught up in what's happening outside of our home that we forget the place we are supposed to show up first is inside. There's work to do in your marriage, and you're the one to do it. There's work to do with our kids. I'm the one to do it. There's work to do in our finances. It's going to be me. There's work to do in faith in our home and establishing that. It's going to be me. I'm going to be the one that does it. Because Jesus did not hang on the cross for me to live lame on the side of the pool. Let's contrast this with Mark 5. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. I got to share the story because it's really funny. I'm going to do it. Brittany just said, don't do it. I'm, I'm up here. I'm the one with the mic. I'm going to do it. So I know this guy. Well, not even that. I don't even know him. I heard this story about a Bible college. This guy goes up on stage, he's talking about this scripture, and he's like, I don't know where she was bleeding from. Maybe her elbow, maybe her arm. Okay, sorry, that's funny. Lord, forgive me. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. By the way, this is the trap of personal development. Personal development parades humanism in replace of grace. I'm going to say that again. I have fallen into this trap. Personal development that's not faith-based parades humanism in replacement of grace. The only reason that we are capable to become aware of areas we can grow and do the work to do it is God's grace. It says in Philippians that God gives us the desire and the capacity to do his will. Please never forget your capacity to win is rooted in what Jesus did on the cross. Okay. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. I'm committed to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. For she thought, herself, thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. I may have been taken advantage of. I may have legitimately been a victim. It may not be my fault. I'm still responsible to get to Jesus. Whatever it takes. And I, I feel this shifting in the room, so i if I was coaching the room, if you were a collective person, this is what I would say right now. Don't pick up shame. Why are you picking up shame right now? Shame was hung on the cross with Jesus. 
Get curious. Curiosity and shame cannot exist in the same moment. Shame is a story based on your past. Curiosity is rooted in the present. So as your mind is starting to berate you for the areas that you're realizing you're prone to playing victim, like I'm standing up here and I have areas in my life that I am aware that I play victim in. And I'm curious, Jesus, what's health look like in that area? What's responsibility look like in that area? Jesus, where are you taking me? You have raised this to my awareness by your Holy Spirit, like it says in Psalms. Search me, O Lord, and know my inward parts. Point out any harmful and hateful way in me. Jesus, you have brought this to my attention. I'm going to assume if you've brought it to my attention, you are gracing me to begin to deal with it. What is it that you have for me to do, Lord? We don't pick up shame. We pick up curiosity, and we take it to Jesus. And this is the beginning of the process of sanctification. Jesus says to the man who he healed who was lame, laying by the pool, you have been healed, so stop sinning. As a recovering addict, I take my sobriety to Jesus every day. Jesus, I believe you healed me. Center me on that again today. Because I refuse to believe that what I'm used to seeing is what Jesus has for me to see today. I mean, how easy is it, friends? Man, it's been like that with my spouse for the last decade. You know, your brain would much rather continue the story you usually tell yourself than let you see the possibility of a new one. So we're not even interacting with our spouse, with that issue, with that belief system. We're interacting with the story I'm used to telling myself about that. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to live your life lame. I have fulfillment, joy, purpose, mission. There is work to do. You're the one to do it if you change what you see. Romans 12. One and two. So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Here it is. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. I'm going to speak to iPhone users because they're superior technological intellect people. And um, Androids, you can try to find an application to open that your iPhone does natively, but that's okay. So it's third-party apps. It's inconvenient. Come on. All right. When my iPhone goes through an upgrade, I don't get angry at the fact that it didn't have a ruler before. Do you remember when your iPhone, you opened it and it had a ruler on it all of a sudden? I didn't even know I needed to measure stuff. I was just like, hey, babe, do you need anything measured? My iPhone does it. This is the difference between curiosity and shame. We have an upgrade. Jesus brings a new level of awareness to our thinking. 
and we berate the previous version of us for missing it. And we literally didn't know. We had no idea. Like, I cannot tell you. I had no idea as we are seeing our business is growing, our income is growing. I had no idea that wealthy people go to different gyms than I go to. Had no idea. Like, I had no idea that there's restaurants that they all know about that, like, you mean you don't eat a Chick-fil-A? I always go to Chick-fil-A. Like, that you eat different food than I had no idea. I had no idea that passion and intimacy could exist in a marriage post my addiction. I had no idea. Like, I had no idea that I could live a life clear of feeling the pull to stuff that was so harmful and hurtful to me. I had no idea. And then Jesus started to change the way I thought. And instead of being angry about how I was living, I'm getting curious about what Jesus can continue to expand me into now. And then I get to be right about having a hopeful future instead of a dreadful one. Why? Because Jesus is changing the way I think. Do you want to be made whole? Can you come up? Do you want to be made whole? Is the question I want to ask you today. We don't realize how central playing victim becomes to our identity. Remember, identity is who I believe myself to be. And the reason I believe myself to be that is because there was an area of hurt and pain at some point in my life, and I took on these other behaviors that then I started playing victim to to protect myself from feeling that pain again. I'm going to say this a different way. I never intended to become an addict, but I was really hurting. And when I interacted with those things that I did, I didn't feel the pain for a minute. So then I got to play victim to the fact that I was hurting and I kept using this tool. There's people here, you never intended your marriage to end up where it is. But there was a season where things got really rough and people said some stuff that really hurt you. And so you withdrew and put a wall up. And now you get to be right about how once they change, I will. And you're playing victim. Some of you did not intend to be scared around finances and have fear and to hold instead of being generous. But you were laid off for a long time. Or you had a business that failed. Or you had to go through bankruptcy. You never meant to play victim to finances and the economy. But something happened. And it was really real to you. And to risk again mean to possibly be hurt again. And I'd rather save face and avoid accountability. As I was praying today, I felt this in my soul. There are millionaires in this room who God is saying, do you want to be made whole? And there's marriages that are literally generational curse-breaking marriages if you want to be made whole. And there's nonprofits and pastors. There's work to do represented in this room if we're willing to allow Jesus to make us whole.
And here's the struggle. It's hard work. It's daily coming back to Christ and saying, God, I believe you healed me of this. God, I believe you set me free for this. God, I know this is not what you have for me and this is not my identity. I believe you have healed me and I will continue to bring that to you. In the area that I'm scared the most to take to Jesus. But there's work to do. The kingdom of heaven needs expanding in our world and we're the ones to do it. You stand to your feet. I'm going to ask a question and we'll wrap up in just a minute. You bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask a question and then ask one more. So two questions. Easy math. If you're becoming aware as we've been having this conversation this morning of an area in your life you've been playing victim, how do I know I'm playing victim? Think about the emotions. I feel taken advantage of. I feel like I'm smaller. I feel discouraged. I feel hopeless. I feel stuck. I'm angry. I'm resentful. I'm bitter. Where's the area in your life that you have those emotions? Good chance that there's a victim lens and belief system there. If you're realizing you have an area in your life that you're playing victim, can you put your hand on your heart? I'm standing here with my hand on mine. Here's the second question. It's the more important one. Who is committed here in this room today, regardless of whatever it takes, to do the work that God has for us? There is work to do. And I am committed to doing it. If that's you, would you put your hand in the air? You are committed, whatever it takes, to do the work that God has for you to do. I'm going to ask, she's going to lead us in a song here called Waymaker. I'm going to ask that as we sing this, you hold that area in your mind and you declare that Jesus is a way maker in that area of your life and that he would show you what responsibility looks like in that area of your life. And then we're going to pray again in just a minute. Let's sing.